Matthew 13 is considered the kingdom chapter because it consists of several parables about the kingdom of God. Now, a parable is obviously a story. It's a story uh, that is not true, but it's a story that conveys truths. And so what Jesus Christ did often is he used parables of everyday events, such as what we saw in the video, or as was read to us, of things that happen every day, common everyday events, but he throws alongside of it a spiritual meaning. And that's what parable means. Uh, Para in the Greek meaning um, uh, something that comes alongside of, like parallel bars, right? And ball, which means to throw, parable, to throw alongside of something. And so Jesus Christ is doing just that. And, And there are various parables in this chapter. Today we are going to spend time on two very short parables recorded for us in three verses. Verses 44, 45, and 46. Now, having said that, I do want you to reconsider again the topic of joy. We've been talking about joy since the first of the year. And there's no question that everyone uh, would appreciate more joy in life. But generally speaking, um, we are happiness seekers, right? Uh, We are, in fact, I think, very adamantly seekers of happiness. In fact, happiness is so important to us, but so important that in the United States, in our founding documents, it reads this way, all men are created equal. They are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. These are rights that cannot be taken away from you. Here they are. Here are three of them. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You know, happiness is ingrained in us as Americans. But for most of us, happiness is like trying to capture wind in a jar. Oh, you could capture it, but as soon as you capture it, it dissipates. It's gone. Happiness dissolves very quickly. And many of us could admit that the adrenaline of the anticipation of actually obtaining that happiness often is more exciting than actually obtaining it. Happiness certainly can be short-lived. The element that we seldom speak of is joy. We are so focused on happiness, we forget about joy. And yet the scriptures speak very much about joy, very much so. Um, we do talk about joy at Christmas time, don't we? And we say joy to the world. We sing it. We see it on people's front lawns. Joy to the world. And I wonder how many people actually understand what that is. Why, why joy to the world? For many people, it's just joy during this holiday season. Uh, joy maybe to the world. It's almost like wishful thinking. And yet the Bible does speak very much so of how important joy is and how you can obtain joy. Uh, Very few people, though, think of joy as their own personal experience. In fact, if I was to ask you to raise your hand right now, I wonder how many people would say, oh, yes, count me in. I am a joyful person. Should I try? No? Oh, we got one. I won't ask. I won't ask. But the truth is, many of us lack joy. 
We think of being glad, but we, we, we lack joy. Um, it's rather rare. Happiness does produce gladness. Joy produces rejoicing. And, and if you only have the pursuit of happiness, then all you could expect in this life is gladness. If you pursue joy, you, you are going to find rejoicing. And, and honestly, gladness is good. I'm all for gladness. But it is very temporal. Would you agree? It's so short-lived. It's so circumstantial. And yes, I think gladness is very enjoyable. I like being glad. But it doesn't endure. It's not durable at all. In fact, gladness is very weak. Just the slightest piece of bad news just takes away the gladness. In fact, a day that starts very glad can end very sad. Just like that. Doesn't take much at all. And whereas Americans are given the right to the pursuit of happiness, listen, my friends, Christians, we are given the duty of joy. As Christians, we're given the duty of joy. And let me begin by making what I think is a rather awkward statement. I think most of you, if not all of us here, will not like it. But it's true nonetheless. I think you will agree that it's not only awkward to your ears, but that it goes against common sense. And yet it's very true. Here's the statement. Self-denial is the means of joy. Does that bother you? Self-denial is the means of joy. Now, earlier this month, we talked about how joy is not a secret. It could easily be found through Christ. We talked about how God gives us reason for joy through his grace. The fact that God is gracious to us should bring us just bucket loads of joy. And last week, we talked about the glad heart and uh, the joy that comes to those who actually seek the Lord. Joy can be yours. And this morning we're going to talk about the pursuit of joy. And and here it is again. Self-denial unlocks the door to joy. There's a correlation between self-denial and the pursuit of joy that we often miss. Uh, Let me step back a little. Let me say this. Whereas we have the right to happiness as Americans. That's a good thing. Happiness should never be your priority. Happiness should never be your life goal. And let me give you three quick reasons why it should not be. First one is this. Happiness is never going to satisfy you. Number two, happiness does not last. But here's the big one. Number three, if happiness is your life goal, there is nothing you will not do in order to obtain it. And yes, that pursuit will take you into some very good places. Places that will put a smile on your face. Places that you will look and say, here's my legacy. That was good. I'll be remembered for this. But if happiness is your life goal, it will also take you, it will lead you into dark alleys of degradation and even moral slime in hopes of satisfying your craving for happiness. The pursuit of happiness can actually be a very dangerous endeavor. 
And so, my friends, let me remind you that joy has to be our pursuit. Joy. Because joy is not based on your circumstances. Joy actually outlives your daily experiences. Joy comes from within, and joy quenches the thirst in your soul. Happiness does not. Joy does not depend on what's happening in your life today, or what happened in your life as you were growing up. Happiness, yes, it is external, whereas joy is internal. You'll you'll recall we said that joy is an internal thrill of the soul. Joy pertains to who you are, not what's going on around you. Happiness relates to what you do. Thus, joy needs to be your pursuit. So here again, here's that awkward statement. The truth that doesn't sound truthful. Joy is obtained through self-denial. If you truly want to be happy, know joy. If you want to know joy, practice self-denial. And here's a word we don't hear too often, now do we? Self-denial. When was the last time you heard that? If you are above 19 years of age. (laughs) Self-denial. The problem with believing this statement is that we do not understand what self-denial is. So let me try to make that clear. What is self-denial? And I think you'll better comprehend and even appreciate what I'm saying here, what I classified as a rather awkward statement. You see, self-denial is not the rejection of happiness. That's usually what we think, right? I will deny myself that donut. I will deny myself that website. I will deny myself that drink. And then we think well of ourselves, but boy, was it hard. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about here is a whole different self-denial. You know, what Martin Luther used to do, not MLK, Martin Luther the original, the reformer, he believed that in order to bring pleasure to God, in order for him to be happy and even joyful, what he had to do is deny himself by suffering. And what Martin Luther would do, this is before he came to a saving knowledge of Christ. He was a very religious man, though. But before he knew Christ, this is what he used to do. He used to take a whip and flog himself on a daily basis, denying himself the pleasure and the comfort of being painless. And then he would sleep on a hard, dank stone floor, figuring, if I don't have the comforts of my bed, I will become more like Jesus Christ. I must suffer in order for God to forgive me, in order for God to mold me. I must suffer. I must deny myself. I can't have things that I, that I would otherwise enjoy. I'll take away every ounce of pleasure in me so that I can be more like Christ. And boy, was he wrong. And eventually he came to a realization of that when he read from the book of Romans, chapter 1, verses 16 and then 17. And he realized that salvation doesn't come from flogging yourself or denying yourself the pleasures of life, he realized that salvation comes when you place your faith in Jesus Christ. And his life 
radically changed. And because his life radically changed, the church changed as well. Because you see, the church had gone in a separate, different direction. A direction of man-made rules and traditions. And Martin Luther, he wasn't alone, but mostly Martin Luther, brought the church back on target to what the scriptures say. And that's why we talk about him today. You see, my friends, self-denial is not the rejection of pleasure. Self-denial here is the rejection of a lesser joy for a greater joy. Did you get that? You deny, reject a lesser joy in order to be able to achieve a greater joy. That's the kind of self-denial we're talking about this morning. It's a willingness to set aside something I thought was good and something I desired for something I have discovered is instead great. It is magnificent. It is far better than what I had before. It might cost me everything, but it's quite worth it. Because what you will gain from it is far greater. Let's take a look at Matthew chapter 13. Chapter 13 We've looked at several parables already this morning, but look at verses 44 through 46. Two parables here. They're very short, but extremely important. It reads this way. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field. Here's the second one. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. You see what these men did? They had something very valuable, but they found something that's even of greater value, so they got rid of what they had that was valuable in order to gain something of greater value. They set aside a lesser pleasure for a greater pleasure, a lesser joy for a greater joy. Now, looking at that first parable, some people look at it and say, well, is that really ethical? That I would find treasure on somebody else's field, bury it, and then go and buy the field, sell everything I have, get some money together, and then go and buy the field without telling the owner. Well, I would say no. I guess that would be the equivalent of seeing a Rembrandt at a garage sale and not telling the person, and buying it for two quarters, and then selling it for two million. That would be unethical. Oh yeah, but they sold it, but it would be unethical. But you see, the parable is not dealing with the ethics of the matter here. That that is besides a point. That is not even a part of the conversation. The conversation here is quite different. And by the way, that's the nature of these parables. You you have to find the meaning of the parable and not add to it and not try to place it in a different uh, perspective. No, the parable is about one particular idea and that's what you need to stick with. That's what Christ was teaching. So he was not teaching here about ethics. He was teaching about denying yourself one pleasure in order to gain a greater pleasure. And that's exactly what this fellow did. The point being here that God requires that you forfeit everything 
in order to gain something far greater, in order to gain far more. And that's where you're going to find joy. Lasting. Soul-quenching. Peace-giving joy. The man with, who found the pearl sold everything he had, as valuable as it was, in order to be able to accumulate enough money to go and buy the pearl that was far greater than everything that he had. But what he had was nice. It was good. It got him through. But he said, there's something even greater here. And so I'm going to get rid of all that. I'm going to deny myself all those other good things in order to get something even greater. And there he finds his joy. We see the same example in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 2. It's a recurring theme these weeks. In reference to Christ, Hebrews 2, 12, 2 says, for, Who for the joy set before him, the joy set before Jesus Christ, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God, the throne of God. He set aside his freedom, his painless life. He set aside his life itself and went to the cross. Why? Because there was something greater awaiting him. He endured the cross because there was something greater awaiting him. What is that? The resurrection and being seated once again at the right hand of the Father and providing for us salvation. You see what kind of self-denial we're talking about? All of a sudden, it makes good sense, right, to deny yourself. Deny yourself for something that's greater. Deny everything in order to gain something that's far better. Uh, Let me give to you various passages of what the Bible says about joy. Various passages I have, I think I have ten. I'll I'll read them to you. They might be there on the wall for you. Uh, The first one is this. Look at what the Bible says about joy. John chapter 15, verse 11. Joy is the aim of Jesus Christ. Look at how it reads. I have told you this so that my, what? My joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Christ wants your joy to be complete. Look at Romans 15, 13. Joy fills us when we believe or trust in Jesus Christ. It reads this way. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. He wants to fill you with joy. The kingdom of God is all about joy. Romans chapter 14, verse 17 reads this way. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness. And your joy will be complete. Your joy. Uh, Likewise, in chapter 16, verse 32, the Bible says, Until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Galatians 5.22 tells us that joy is the fruit of the Holy Spirit in you. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. What's next? Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. But don't overlook the fact that joy is right in there as well. And joy is also the aim 
of what the Bible, Bible writers state as, their, as pastors. This is what they say, 1 Corinthians 1, 24. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it is by faith you stand firm. Again, joy. Are you catching on? God wants you to be a joyful person, and he's offering it to you. He's just telling you how to go about it. How do you gain this joy? It's commanded. Uh, look at Psalm 37.4. Delight yourself. It doesn't say if you want to. It's a command. It says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. In other words, joy. And in Psalm 32.11, rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous, sing, all you who are upright in heart. Again, the idea here is joy. Now, some of you are familiar with the writings of John Piper, and on this point, he makes excellent points. Joy and the Christian life. And in making these points, he also lists for us two truths regarding joy. And let me flesh this out a little for you. As I just said a few moments ago, joy is actually commanded. Joy is commanded. And again, Psalm 32, 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Again, joy allows you to rejoice. Rejoicing produces gladness. And gladness is usually often expressed by singing. But why in the world is it a command? Why does God command us to be joyful? We like joy. But maybe if you're anything like me, once it's commanded, it's not so desired anymore, right? Well, it's commanded, all of a sudden it becomes well less desirable. I have to be joyful? It almost takes away my desire. But it also tells us, in commanding us, it also tells us that joy is possible. You see, God would never command something of you that is not possible. He would never command something of you that you cannot do. And so when he says, be joyful, he is saying, it is possible. And you need to pursue it. It's at your doorstep. It's at your doorway. Let it in. Make it come in. Why is it a command, though? Why is it a command? Here's the reason why God commands us to be joyful. Because what is at stake, if you are not joyful, is God's glory. God's honor, God's reputation is at stake when you are not joyful. Hmm. That is to say, if we rejoice in God, God is honored. But if you turn away from him as the fountain of joy, and you begin to embrace other things other than Jesus Christ as a means of obtaining joy, his reputation is dishonored. His glory is ignored. We're all guilty of it at one point or another. So that's why it's commanded. We have a tendency to do otherwise. And so he says, be joyful. He is saying, prefer God, Christ, over everything else. Because when you do that, he's honored. When you do that, he's glorified. 
But our tendency really is to look for that joy elsewhere and begin to make idols out of everything the world offers, hoping that, well, maybe this one will be satisfying. And what do we discover again and again and again and again? We fall short. There is no joy there. Yes, there was a smile for a time, but no joy. My soul is still starving. Well, let me share with you two truths regarding joy and God's command to be joyful. Here's the first truth. It's rather simple, but it's profound. The first truth is this. God created us for his glory. Why did God create you? For his glory. Isaiah 43, 7 says, Everyone whom I created for my glory whom I formed and made. You see, my friends, contrary to common logic, God does not exist for us. We exist for God. And we exist in order to bring him glory. We are to reflect him. We are to bring him pleasure. And joy comes when we best fulfill the very purpose for which God created us. When we begin to be who God intended for us to be, God glorifies, God magnifies, suddenly joy begins to pour into our souls. You know, I, I can't tell you how many, especially young people, but not just young people, but young people in particular, high school and a little younger who are looking for a joy and they just can't find it because the last place they want to find joy the last place they want to look is at Christ for a parent that is devastating to watch and so we pray and we pray and we instill the word of God in them but let me remind you you will find joy only in Christ and you can look elsewhere, but you will end up empty like everybody else. Like everybody else. We will never jo- know joy if we are living contrary to the purpose for which we were created. You see, that's what I mean by denying myself. I deny myself all these lesser pleasures for the greater pleasure, Jesus Christ. And in light of the fact that God created us for his glory, here is number two, lesson number two. Therefore, every human should live for God's glory. If God created us for his glory, then every human should live for the glory of God. First Corinthians 10.31 says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for what? The glory of God. Do it all for the glory of God. So that life is to be God-oriented. Our lives should be like a compass that always points north. Well, Christian, your life should always be pointing Christ. If you want to be joyful. If you want to fulfill your purpose. Now, if you don't want joy, if you don't want to fulfill your purpose, well, then you, you, you can let that compass point wherever you want. But if you're going to look for joy and fulfill the purpose for which God created you, then deny yourself for a greater thing. Deny the lesser for a greater. Christ himself. God is the origin of all things. 
and he is the standard for everything. He created us for his glory, therefore we should be the first to glorify him. So, so we know God's intent for us, we, we know God's purpose for us, and, and you bring the two together, and, and what do you have? You have a life that pursues after Christ, so that we are then going to not only find joy, but we find joy because we are bringing him glory. It, it is a struggle. But this is the life of the Christian. This is what the scriptures are all about. About a life that focuses on Christ. The greater pleasure that requires that we deny the lesser pleasure. In order that we will be the greatest fulfilled. I should live for God's glory because that's why he created me. You know, um, some years ago I was coming here. And I stopped at a red light. And at the red light, um, just one car in front of me, there were two bumper stickers. And on the left, it said, honk if you love Jesus. Remember those bumper stickers? You don't see them anymore, really. But for a while there, for those of you who are young, it was on every other car. Honk if you love Jesus. I remember one time I honked and the guy yelled at me. I was like, oh. He said, it's a red light. I said, that's right. He said, your bumper sticker. Honk if you love Jesus on the left. And on the right, it said, the person with the most toys at the end wins. How ironic, right? Because those are two philosophically incongruent ideas. Honk if you love Jesus, the one with the most toys at the end wins. Those two just don't mash. Because love for Jesus means you deny bumper sticker on the right. The lesser things for the greater thing. Jesus is the treasure that far exceeds all that stuff. Because all of life is about God. That's why he created us. Christian, all of life is about Christ in you. And there you will find your joy. We were created in order to magnify him. Some years ago, there was an big orange spider in our house. Now, nobody cares for spiders in the house to begin with. The bigger, the worse. Now, this one was very unique. It was orange. And, and of course, my wife didn't care for it. I didn't care for it, but my sons were thrilled by it. And so they captured it, and they put it under a magnifying glass because they wanted to see the intricate beauty of this spider. And they just looked at it under the magnifying glass. And I'm reminded of what Christians are supposed to be doing. You see, we are to be that magnifying glass. And we are to make the beauty of Christ seen to the rest of the world. Christ is under the magnifying glass. We are that glass. So that the world could see the beauty of Jesus Christ. That's our task. So be joyful because Christ looks good when he makes us infinitely joyful. That sounds like a Piper statement, doesn't it? I think it was. <laughs> Christ looks good when, we ma- when he makes us infinitely joyful.
Uh, C.S. Lewis said this, It is the Christian's duty to be happy, to be as happy as he can be in God. The Christian's duty. And in reality, we, we have all failed to glorify God. Romans 3.23 makes that very clear. It says, for all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. There, there's a sin nature in us, and that sin nature alone is reason for condemnation. And we have to begin to understand the gravity of our sin. Otherwise... If we don't understand the bigness of God and the gravity of our sins, we're always going to think that God exaggerated when he sent people to hell. He says, that's far too much. Nobody deserves that. That's because you don't understand the beauty of God, the holiness of God, or the sinfulness of your sin. Sin is coming short of the glory of God. Sin is not simply an abuse of somebody else. Sin is primarily the abuse of God himself. It is a mistreating of God. And we, as Christians, were created to glorify him. If you want to know joy, fulfill your purpose in life, glorify God. Be joyful. Because Christ looks good when he makes us infinitely joyful. Uh, the gospel is not about, about you, but about Christ alone. It's about what he has done. And yes, he has done it for us. But it's first and foremost about who Christ is and what he has done. And my friends, he's given us reason to be joyful. And he's also given us the means by which we would be joyful. And in that process, he promises us a future. He takes away our condemnation. He promises us his presence. We have reason to be joyful. Christ has done what needed to be done. He's put away our sins so that we can now live in a way that will glorify him. Will you commit yourself to doing that? That you will commit yourself, say, Lord, give me the strength, give me the heart, the desire to live a life that brings you glory. And Lord, I would ask you then that you would make me joyful. <coughs> make me joyful. It is your Savior who will rescue you. It is your Savior who will bring you joy. You must call out to him. And he will come to you. And he will give you life. You must say, you know, I have it really good, but I found something even greater. And I'm going to set aside the good for what is greatest. And there you will know God's purpose in your life. And there you will know joy. Amen. Amen.